What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Our market guest made a bold call three months ago that generated a lot of blowback. It's also proven right so far. He joins us for a little victory lap and with what else he's betting on right now. Plus, they're young, they like to travel, and they're buying into one travel trend in particular, which I'm scratching my head to figure out. We'll talk to the CEO of the company that's been benefiting from it. And home builders have been buying down mortgage rates to make homes more affordable. Now, one of my guests says it may be time for the government to make a move that would help lower mortgage rates as well. He's here to tell us what that is. Let's start with the markets, though. We're back to session lows this hour. Over to Dom Chu with the numbers, Dom. Just about pretty deeply in the red right now, given some of the price action we've seen in certain key stocks within the market, the heavily weighted ones. But to give you the state of play right now, as Kelly points out, we are down roughly 44 points for the Dow Industrials, one-tenth of one percent. It doesn't seem like a lot. But the broader S&P 500, which is much more tilted towards technology, is where we're seeing things play out. We're down about 48 points right now. 41.99 is the last trade there. At the highs of the session, it was still a down day, down about 15 handles, 15 points, down 52 points at the low. So, again, tilting right around the lows of the session, 42.38. That's the level, the 200-day moving average, so to speak, that longer-term trend line that some traders are watching. Keep an eye on that. And, of course, the tech-heavier Nasdaq Composite Index down 254 points, 12,885. That represents a near 2% decline, really getting heavily hit right now on some earnings results, especially from big technology. Now, if you take a look at interest rates, that's part of the story as well. We are now ticking back towards that 5% mark on long-term U.S. government debt. The 10-year benchmark Treasury note, 4.94%, just a hair below that right now. Remember, the cycle highs that we saw over the course of this past week, 5.02% or thereabouts. So again, creeping back up towards that 5% level. It has been a place where we've seen buyers step in. So we'll see what happens with rates there. And then I mentioned the individual story stock-wise. A lot of focus is on big technology with Microsoft up 2.5%. It's not, though, outweighing the downside pressure due to a 9% drop in Alphabet. Both of these companies reported after yesterday's closing bell. Both beat earnings expectations, but a tale of two different cloud momentum trajectories for those that's leading to Alphabet's downside. And by the way, Meta Platforms, Kelly, out after the closing bell today, I will point out that Meta in the options market right now is currently implying what could be an 8.5% roughly move in the stock up or down. That may seem like a lot, but over the last eight quarters, on average, it's been up or down a whopping 15%. So it could be less volatile, even at 8.5%. And by the way, Kelly, if you're looking for some of those stats, I've posted them all to x slash Twitter and threads as well. 
at the domino. You can check those out. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Tom, thanks. Alphabet, the third worst stock in the S&P right now. My next guest says the current market environment calls for caution, but he's also not shy of making some bold calls, like he did three months ago here when he said he'd rather own Verizon than Tesla for the next year, a call that generated a lot of blowback from viewers and even his own colleagues at the time. But so far, that call is paying off, with Verizon nicely outperforming Tesla, which is down 19% since then. Let's welcome back Chris Grisanti, Chief Equity Strategist at MAI Capital Management. Welcome back. Nice to see you, Kelly. Give you a little tip of the hat, but do you close the trade now? It's only been three months. Do you stick with it for the no, full 12? No, I think we're, we're, we're taking a victory quarter of a lap. Okay. I, mean, I mean, we're going the full year, and, and you know, I, I think things are going to get progressively more difficult for the economy, and, and, and Tesla's in a tough place. It's an expensive stock in a, in a tough industry, and it's, it's a tough road to hoe. I, I, I take your point on Tesla, um, but I'm curious how much upside there could really be for Verizon, or is upside literally just it doesn't fall another 10% and, well, and get a right. lot worse? You know, you you're in a group that's out of favor. Nobody wanted a non-tech stock that wasn't growing in the first half. But if you, if you uh, paint it a different way, here's a stock that's paying a safe 8% dividend that's selling for seven times earnings right. that probably isn't that economically sensitive. If the economy slows, that's probably the kind of stock that portfolio managers like me will gravitate towards. And the seven times maybe becomes nine or 10 times, not heroic. And the stock goes up while the rest of the market isn't, and you're earning an 8% dividend. So and is that basically what you expect overall here? You know, at some point, uh, 2024, is it recession, or is it just you just don't see a lot of market upside from here? No, I, I mean, I don't want to get over my skis, but, but all signs seem to me to be pointing towards a recession. Folks want long rates to peak, including me. But the problem is when long rates peak, it's great for bond investors. It's not so great for stock investors. Sure. You know, uh, bond rates don't peak for good reasons, they peak for kind of scary reasons. The economy is slowing and, and stocks uh, tend to follow uh, yields downward. You know, back in 2000, uh, the, the bond rates peaked in, uh, in February and then the stocks peaked seven weeks later. In 2007, the same thing happened. So I, I expect both peaks to be coming in the relatively near future and, and that scares me. And I'm, I'm not calling for Armageddon, but I am, I am cautious. Yeah, and so you're deploying some of those kind of tactical moves. We've talked, we talked last year when the home builders were trading also at around four times earnings. Sure. Very, very low. They're obviously not there anymore, and you've kind of gotten out of that one. But there's another one that is in that range now. And my guess is, given what you've cited, you want nothing to do with it. But General Motors is trading at four sure. times. And is that cheap enough now that it's priced in all of the potential macro and, and industry headwinds that could be coming? Well, you know, it's funny. General Motors is, is a pretty interesting stock. And value managers like me, we tend to look for stuff that, that may have some difficulty getting through, but it's just so darn cheap that you need to go there. Having said that, it's really tough to buy General Motors really at any price if you think like I do that that things are going to slow down before they speed up, especially in the middle of an auto strike. But, but you know, General Motors, there's a bunch of retailers like Target and others that are also getting really, really cheap. Yeah. But again, I think caution, you know, discretion is the better part of valor here, at least for now. So tell me a little bit, of, you know, a lot of people are starting to look back. We've seen the utilities snap back from their recent lows, consumer staples, you know, defensive parts of the market that have not performed well so far. Would you stick your toes into those parts of the market? Yeah. Yeah, well, the devil's in the details there, Kelly. Like the idea of defensives, but the problem is stuff like, I don't know, staples like Procter & Gamble, there's hardly any growth 
yet the multiples are quite high. It's not like Verizon where there's hardly any growth, but you're not paying up for it. Absolutely. I like stocks like Verizon where those earnings weren't great yesterday. They were okay. But the stock can go up because the worst didn't happen. Look at Google. Google's earnings were pretty darn good, just missing a little on the cloud, and the stock's down 9%. I, I like the other side of it. And so do you think there could be more downside to come for the kind of former high flyers of the market? And I mean, some of the PEs, even in Microsoft's case, are not that elevated. Um, Even NVIDIA's is not, you know, crazy high by some of the historical standards that we've seen. So I think one of the questions people are going to ask themselves is, should they go into, for instance, the MAG7 because they think that they're the new staples and can be growth in a no growth environment? Or do they steer clear of them because... To your point, they might have more downside. You know, I, I, I don't think there's, there's a disaster coming in the MAG-7, as you say, but, but I do think it's awfully hard for me to imagine them outperforming in the next year like they have in the year that just went by. That's especially true because expectations now are so high. Today, Microsoft's up 2.5% with terrific earnings. That, that was a great report. But it's not, you know, the, the, the mirror image is Google had a mediocre report. It's down 9%. So they're, they're going up less. They're falling more. That's starting to scare me, too. So, so I, again, I'd be cautious. Amazon may be one of the ones of that category that you relatively like or thinks it has more of its destiny in its own hands. And real quickly before you go, you are among those who like the healthcare trade still. Mm-hmm. I do. I mean, and, and I've been wrong and wrong and wrong. But I think here you've got companies like Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson that still can't get a bid each day. And they're, they're, they're not plummeting, but they're slowly going down. The yields are going up. Again, in, in three months, and six months, if we're in a much different economic situation, those stocks which are trading at their low end of their 10-year historic range are going to be real attractive to investors, I think. All right. We'll check back in in another couple months. Terrific. Chris, thanks so much. Thank appreciate you, appreciate you coming in today. Chris Crisanti with MAI. Let's pivot now to the financials where shares of the investment bank Stiefel are down nearly five, nearly 6% now after reporting earnings per share that were 69 cents lower than what the street was expecting. The miss was thanks in part to a one-time legal charge for an SEC investigation into off-channel communication. That was a 58-cent drag on results. Stiefel, however, did pick up its 13th straight quarter of record net revenues in its global wealth management segment, in contrast to that weakness we heard by Morgan Stanley in wealth management last week. For more here, we're joined by Stiefel's CEO, Ron Krzyzewski. And Ron, it's great to have you back. Welcome. Kelly, great to be here. I should note that no one's in a great mood trading the banks. The KBE and the KRE are both within a couple bucks of their lows this year. What do you think that's all about? You know, look, I think financials are are oversold. It's been it's been a tough environment with uh, again the same story as interest rates and as as with an inverted yield curve, with investors looking for yield everywhere and depositors looking for yield, and put on top of that basically quantitative tightening by the Fed. It's not been a good environment for banks, but this is where returns are made. Um, you, as your last uh, guest said, I, I don't see a a big recession here in some of these classic uh, value stocks like financials are oversold. So with that also, I want to just show everyone what Bill Gross's thoughts were. He tweeted a short or, or said on X a short while ago that um, he thinks the regional banks at some point, maybe not yet, are looking attractive here. Uh, this was the first of, of kind of two, the first part of his two part thoughts on the matter where he says, you know, it's kind of like catching a falling knife. He says, I'm waiting a few more days, but they are great long-term holds. So there are a lot of investors on the sidelines, Ron, and, and maybe they, you know, I don't know if they're waiting for it to break to new lows or if they want to hear something from the banks they haven't heard yet uh, to, to be buying in here. 
Again, uh, you know, the economy, every, everyone, you and I talked back in July, and every, uh, the economy and everyone is re-rating to a 5% risk-free rate, uh, and the banks will adjust. Uh, and I think that the, the banks and, and basic uh, cyclical stocks will do well. And you've got to be careful about the high P.E. stocks. And that's why we think uh, the high P.E. stocks could come in. The, uh, the more classic value stocks will rise and the S&P doesn't really go anywhere. Um, I said that to you back in July and I hold that today. Yeah. And it, it, as it's borne out. So what did you do in wealth management? What, what speaks to the strength? <laughs> Feel free. I mean, was this, you know, market share gains or is there a different, you know, business segment or client mix that, that you're facing that is contributing to these gains? No, no, we, we're definitely uh, growing in wealth management. You know, we, we did get a, an award, which was a J.D. Power. We were uh, ranked for employee satisfaction, which is important. It means advisors like working at Stiefel. And that has resonated throughout our recruiting. Happy advisors mean happy clients. And that business has been a consistent growth, not just in the last quarter, but really for almost the last 20 years. I said this morning, Kelly, though, I feel like Bill Murray on Groundhog Day <laughs> because for the last eight quarters, it's been the same thing. Our wealth management business rises and our institutional business declines, which is happening across the industry. And it just feels the same every day. I, if, if my alarm clock has plays, I've got you, babe. I know I'm in the movie. Yeah, I should have played it as your intro <laughs> you music, should've. I think. Yes. Uh, net interest income is up a bit. Is it going to yep. go higher or do you see some headwinds there? I said I, I see headwinds uh, for uh, across the industry. I think net interest. Well, net interest income is based on balance sheet growth, but I think net interest margins uh, across the industry are are at highs. But uh, as as that number declines. Uh, that our institutional business will pick up. And that's why you look at Stiefel or companies like us, because we are at, at really low points in our institutional business. Uh, it, it really cannot, uh, you know, get much uh, slower, the business. In terms uh, of demand, commercial demand for loans? Well, they, again, I think they, we, spent, we spent a decade, or since the financial crisis, the trade has been raise capital at zero rates, put leverage on it, fix the business up a little bit, and sell it to someone else at low rates with more leverage. Sounds like private and, equity, yeah. Well, that's what it's been. And so, you know, if you, as long as you could have leverage, you know, put a little air in the tires and sell it with more leverage, everyone was making money. That trade is not available today. And the whole market about how you allocate capital and raise capital in a rate environment, which I think is now normal, I think, you know, we're not going back to zero rates. Uh, the, Fed's not going to do that. And uh, so we're going to be, you know, somewhere between call it two and a half and five, depending on cycles on the uh, short end. And the 10 year is going to settle right here around 5%. Uh, and the market will adjust to that. It's just taken a little while. It's really interesting. Obviously, it's a headwind for some of the investment banking business, not just um, IPOs or advisory or that kind of thing, but even lower muni bond and debt issuance. I thought that was interesting. And maybe that reverses somewhat going forward. I want to ask you a really wonky final question, but with, right. with big implications. And we did talk to Randy Quarles about this yesterday. He had some uh, concerns. I don't know how much it applies to you, but what's what's your take on the Basel III endgame? It, it does not, uh, fortunately for us, it does not have uh, a big impact. Ironically, uh, we, we might even get a, a little capital relief. It's a, it's a technical matter. But as it relates to our largest banks, uh, I think the Basel III endgame 
is is over the top in terms of uh, causing our banks to have too much of a capital buffer it will make us uncompetitive, and those uh, that th this impacts the economy. I mean, we need banks to be competitive. They need to be sound, which they are. But uh, some of us, where you're talking about 20% increases in, in equity levels, will find its way back into impacting loan availability and the economy. So I'm hopeful that the Fed was serious when they said that they'll take comments from the industry. And, uh, and I'm concerned if they don't. I just, you know, Quarles had some concerns. He said liquidity should come from the Fed, not from capital. The Economist had a piece very much supportive of the idea of raising capital and basically asking the question, you know, what else, what other option do we have in a crisis, especially if, if the next crisis, if the fiscal piece, if the government is somewhat sidelined? Well, again, uh, we, we have capital roles, we have international, we need to compete uh, this. But what is happening in the United States is I think we're, we're overcapitalizing the banks from a competitive perspective, and we need to think about that. And we also need to think that in a capitalistic society, uh, the Fed was created to be a lender of last resort. That's, that's, that's our system. So I, I'm not going to criticize that system. In a time of crisis, liquidity does come from the Fed. Uh, that's yeah. I think that's a basic fundamental part of our U.S. Uh, capitalist system. Yeah, more or less a codified one. Ron, I appreciate always getting your thoughts on that matter. Bond yields, everything else that you mentioned. Uh, it's a, a great service. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Kelly. Have a great day. Thanks. Ron Kraszewski is the CEO of Stiefel. Meantime, the latest floor vote for a new House speaker is underway. Is the fourth time a charm. Emily Wilkins on Capitol Hill with the latest. Emily? Hey, Kelly. Well, things are looking very good right now for Mike Johnson. He is the Republicans' latest nominee for speaker, and it looks like there's a very good chance that he could be the next speaker. It's a roll call vote. We're going through the alphabet. We've just hit the E's uh, or maybe the D's. Johnson. But the important thing is that at this point, we don't have anyone, any Republican, who has voted against Mike Johnson. That includes sort of your more moderate members from uh, Biden districts like Don Bacon. That also includes members like Tim. Burchett, uh, who did vote to oust Kevin McCarthy. And so it kind of seems across the spectrum, Republicans are united um, behind Mike Johnson. Of course, we need to get through the entire roll call vote before we can say that officially. Uh, Johnson can afford to lose five Republicans just because of how the absences shook out today. Um, but at this point, it, folks are very confident. This is a much different vibe than what we had during the Jordan vote or the, any of the Jordan votes or even around Scalise or Emmer. You can really feel that folks are united, that they're confident and that they are ready to start getting to work again, just because there's so much to do after 21 days of, of no speaker. Yeah, and there's the palpable excitement that we could finally have a new leader, but also a lot of concerns about, you know, to what extent he can marshal support for some of the key things that need to happen. I guess, you know, he told uh, New York Republicans there would be no shutdown. He would help on salt relief. You know, there's obviously a lot of debate over uh, foreign aid. I don't think he's been a big fan of the money we're spending in Ukraine. So a lot of big uh, policy issues for him right away. There are. And of course, he's going to have to figure out how to navigate some of these. Certainly, as you mentioned, with Ukraine, he has been opposed to to most recent aid packages. But the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of Republicans are still supportive of that and all of the Democrats are still supportive of that. So he's going to have to figure out ways to work with President Biden, with Hakeem Jeffries, with uh, the two leaders in the Senate going forward. But, you know, coming to government funding, which I think is one of the most critical things because you've got that November 17th deadline. I've been talking with folks this morning, staffers and lawmakers. 
And it seems like a lot of them are saying, look, when it comes to Mike Johnson, we need to give him some grace. We cannot blame him for the things that we were frustrated about with Kevin McCarthy. Uh, we need to give him a little bit of leeway. Mike Johnson himself has put forward a plan. Basically, the House has eight uh, long-term funding bills left that they need to pass. He is hoping to be able to actually get through all of them before November 17th. But of course, even if the House does, huge if, uh, they are going to need to pass some stopgap funding. But it sounds like more members who were opposed to that under McCarthy are now going to be more open to that uh, if Mike Johnson can prove that he is very focused on getting those uh, full-year funding bills passed. All right, Emily, we'll check back in soon. We appreciate it. Emily Wilkins on Capitol Hill. Coming up, home builders are on track for an eighth straight week of losses as mortgage rates have jumped a full point. Is it time for Fannie and Freddie to step in? One strategist says that's a very real possibility ahead of next year's election. He'll join us to explain. But first, timeshare company Travel and Leisure, formerly known as Wyndham Destinations, hitting a three-year low, down about 50% from its pandemic high. The company just posted a beat on the top and bottom line, though, and is seeing a pretty major shift in its customer base. The CEO joins us next to explain. As we head to break, here's a look at markets. Dow's lower by only 50 points, but you can see the big declines are in the Nasdaq, down 2% today. The S&P down 1.2%, the small cap Russell down 1.5%, and the 10-year yield continues to creep higher at nearly 4.95 at the moment. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a, a piece of pecan pie trip to Texas. Go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Shares of travel and leisure are down after their earnings this morning, only about 2%. The world's largest timeshare operator beat on the top and bottom lines, but lowered fourth quarter and full year guidance. A highlight was its vacation ownership business that saw an 8% year-on-year jump, which it says is also recession-proof because of its prepaid model. In fact, 80% of its customers have fully paid for their timeshares with the large majority of new buyers being millennials and Gen X. Joining me in an exclusive interview is Michael Brown, president and CEO of Travel and Leisure Co. Michael, it's good to see you again. Welcome. Great to be back on your show. Thanks. When you say, I'm not as that familiar, I have to confess with the timeshare visit, when you say they fully paid, how, how big a price tag do these units have? Usually the average transaction for vacation uh, that's in perpetuity is between twenty and $25,000. So when we say people have fully paid for their ownership, when they're deciding to go on vacation this year, they're only paying their annual maintenance fee, which is on average about $1,000. So at a time when inflation's high and hotel rooms are at all-time high rates, 
people have already paid for it. So the decision to go on vacation, which gets to your point of being resilient and recession proof, they're going to go on vacation because they've already paid for it years ago. And where are the most popular places, both in general and for some of your younger customers? Well, things have changed pretty dramatically in the last two years. Uh, 22 was the year of revenge travel, where people were going anywhere and everywhere, short-term and mid, mid-haul, uh, short-haul and mid-haul. This year in the summer, we saw a return to long-haul vacations where people had not traveled for many years until prior to COVID. Cruises were big. Europe was big. And what we're seeing is a normalization back to U.S. travel, and I'd expect to see that, a lot of U.S. travel in 2024. As for our millennials and especially Gen Xers, we're seeing a lot of urban travels. Uh, our most recent resorts have opened in Portland, Austin, Texas, Nashville, Tennessee, and our newest resort is in downtown Atlanta overlooking Centennial Park. So urban destinations for quick getaways are super popular these days. That's really surprising. I mean, not least because places like Portland have had some challenges with you know law and order in recent years. Um, and who's who's going to downtown Atlanta for a vacation? Well, oddly enough, um, the way people are vacation today, they're looking for short getaways, but they're also looking to leverage multiple destinations. So we are very prominent in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. The panhandle of Florida is super popular. Orlando, Central Florida, where we're based, is returning with a lot of strength in late 23 and in 24. So what you'll often get is a visit to downtown Atlanta, enjoy a lot of the cuisine or a lot of the great uh, museums like the Georgia Aquarium or the College Football Museum for two days, three days, and then they'll pop across to a beach and enjoy a longer vacation. So it's just variety and, and diversification of the experiences. And, you know, downtown Austin, Texas, that's where Formula One one was this past weekend. Uh, So people are getting to urban destinations. And of course, I didn't even mention New York City where people are year round. Yeah, we just showed your uh, price to earnings multiple at six, which is, you know, quite low and probably suggests people's concern about the macro environment. Um, A little bit of what you're describing going into next year. So if if you look at those trends and that consumer behavior, I can understand, Okay, it's a thousand bucks to go on vacation. You have to get those plane tickets. That might still be an item that people have to drop if, if budgets are getting a little tight. Well, well, I, th- I think a few things. Uh, let me just talk. Price, price to earnings multiple reflects a lot of uncertainty that investors have of where the economy is going and where interest rates are going. That doesn't change our underlying business. You said it in the intro, 5 to 7% total growth this year with our core vacation ownership business being much higher than that. What we see from our consumers, though, is if the price of airfare becomes a concern and you're living in Pennsylvania, you're going to change your vacation, get in a car and drive to D.C. and enjoy the museums or drive down to Myrtle Beach and enjoy the beach or further south uh, like Orlando at Disney. So our consumers modify their behavior. They don't stop going on vacation. All right, Michael, thanks for joining us today on those earnings. It's always good to check in with you. We appreciate it. Thank you for your time today. Michael Brown, CEO of Travel and Leisure. Coming up, Alphabet's the worst performer in the NASDAQ today. While Meta has handily outperformed its mega cap tech peers this year, basically three to one since Jan 1. Now it's under scrutiny from state attorneys general. That's ahead in today's tech check, along with the preview of its earnings report tonight. And as we head to break, here's a look at the sector heat map. 
communication services is the biggest laggard today, down 5% on that tough Google day and its worst day in over a year. Meanwhile, consumer staples and utilities are the only two sectors in the green. We're back after this. When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a, a piece of pecan pie. Trip to Texas. Go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Welcome back and good day, everyone. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. The Israeli government said today that more than half of the hostages being held by Hamas in Gaza have foreign nationality. The estimated 220 hostages have foreign passports from 25 different countries, including 54 Thai nationals. The government also said 328 people from 40 countries are confirmed as dead or missing after the October 7th attack on southern Israel. President Biden and the Australian Prime Minister holding a joint press conference at the White House shortly. The two world leaders are expected to discuss defense strategies in China, Israel and Ukraine. President Biden said the two nations are committed to keeping the Indo-Pacific region free, open and secure. The visit expected to end in agreements about how best to deter and compete with China. And the Manhattan District Attorney said Marvel actor Jonathan Majors will stand trial at the end of November. Majors was arrested in March for an alleged domestic dispute and is facing misdemeanor assault charges. The Loki actor has denied those charges. Kelly, back to you. Tyler, thanks. I'll see you shortly. Tyler Matheson. Let's get a check on the markets now with the Dow uh, low down 152 points. We're just off that level right now. But look at the Nasdaq down two and a quarter percent. The S&P down 1.4. Holding up the Dow, by the way, are travelers, uh, which is having a nice day. And a couple of other unique situations. Uh, Higher interest rates are part of the reason why we're seeing this renewed pressure. The five-year auction was poor top of the hour, and that's been pushing the long end higher, as we just mentioned. Uh, As for some positives, waste management is having its best day since the start of the pandemic after an earnings beat fueled by higher prices. It's up 5.5%. And on the flip side, ADP is among the worst names in the S&P having its worst day in nearly two years, despite an earnings and revenue beat. Uh, earnings beat revenues were in line. They gave a more narrowed revenue outlook for one of their HR-related segments, but still down more than 9% today. And TransUnion is coming off its worst day on record and hitting its lowest level in more than six years after missing estimates on the top and bottom lines. The company also cutting its forecast, citing worsening macroeconomic conditions in the third quarter from inflationary pressures and rising interest rates. That was yesterday, and it's led to a flurry of down downgrades and price target cuts on the street today, including Bank of America double downgrading the stock from buy to underperform, slashing their price target from 95 to a new street low of 44 and saying they expect the slowdown in consumer lending to persist into the middle or late part of next year and are hard pressed to identify an opportunity 
for material upside unless the macro environment improves. That's another 6% drop for TransUnion today. And then coming up, it's not just them. Equifax nearing a new 52-week low after cutting guidance in its most recent report. Management blaming the weaker U.S. mortgage market, saying they expect credit inquiries to fall 34% over the full year, down three points from their last guidance. Up next, we will look at whether reforming Fannie and Freddie could answer what the housing market has been looking for. And also want to bring your attention to shares of Ford with the Associated Press reporting the automaker is near a deal with the UAW that will end the six-week strike. Shares are in the green by less than 1%, though. We'll continue to follow the story. The Exchange is back after this. Welcome back. The home builders are under pressure again today, despite new home sales climbing at the fastest pace since Feb of 2022 last month. Yields are creeping back up. The 10-year yield now back above 495. And Taylor Morrison reported a slight earnings miss, a drop in revenue year on year, and those shares were down nearly 4%. Let's get to Diana Olick to dig a little further into what we've learned today. Diana? Well, Kelly, I think there's this pull going on with the stocks right now between those higher mortgage rates, as you said, and the Taylor Morrison earnings, and then between that much better than expected new home sales report. In fact, new home sales were up 12% month to month, 34% year over year, much better than expected. And that's likely because these are signed contracts in September. So people out shopping during the month and mortgage rates actually dropped a little bit in September, down more below 7.5%, not close to 8% where we are today. And so you had those buyers come in. And we're also hearing much more about cash sales from the builders. In fact, we had the CEO of Pulte on yesterday, and he said about a little less than a quarter of his buyers now are all cash buyers. And for those 55 and above, half of them are using all cash. So that's where you're seeing this demand come in. But I think for the future going forward, the builders right now are lowering, they're much lower on supply. That is that they had lower supply in September than they did in August. And we continue to see that shrink. They're also showing lower prices. Prices were down 12% year over year. That's a median. So it may be skewed toward who's actually buying the homes. That is more people buying on the lower end because affordability has been hit so hard. But again, they're using all incentives that they can and buying down those mortgage rates. We're seeing that very heavily with the builders right now, which is going to cut into their earnings going forward. Kelly. Great point, Diana. We appreciate it. Our Diana Olick. The pain of 8% mortgage rates could also speed up reform to Fannie and Freddie, according to my next guest, who says one option is bringing them out of conservatorship and allowing them to purchase mortgage-backed securities on their own, something that could potentially lower home borrowing costs. Joining me now is Jarrett Seberg, financial services and housing policy analyst at Cowan Washington Research Group. Jarrett, welcome back. Good to see you. Great to see you. Thank you. I, I chuckled a little because you kind of said, look, this could really make a difference, and it's very unlikely that this opportunity in this moment will be seized. Yeah. You know, excuse me. You know, Fannie and Freddie have uh, long been the shock absorbers in the system. Uh, the problem is when they're in conservatorship, they just can't perform that function. There's very hard caps on their retained portfolios. They have a little bit of space, but probably not enough uh, to really make a difference. And so really, if you want to get that shock absorber back, the only option probably uh, is to restore them as free independent companies. I think that should be no con problem for Congress with the new uh, Mike, new leader. What's his name again? Uh, Johnson. Johnson. Thank you. Uh, see, that is no problem. I'm sure that'll be their first order of business. 
Listen, if we can just uh, get the government funded and extend the flood insurance program, uh, you know, housing has enough hits. We don't need flood insurance to expire on November 17th. Hmm. Uh, you know, let's let's set our, our immediate priority for the House uh, much more narrowly. Uh, you know, reform, though, doesn't have to involve Congress. It can involve, uh, you know, our friends at FHFA uh, and Treasury trying to do it administratively. That's what the Trump administration tried to do. And I think that option probably is ultimately, uh, you know, how the GSE conservatorship ends. I think the issue is that the broad public feels like they're in conservator. They're in the timeout chair because they were naughty and they caused the, the housing crisis and the financial crisis. And if we, you know, kind of let them out, they could cause problems all over again. Uh, well, I definitely agree there's a political problem here. And I think the political problem is that the status quo, I mean, right now, this extra 130 basis point spread is a, is a real hardship. But over the last 15 years, the status quo has generally worked. Uh, so you get no credit if you're a politician to changing that. But if you change it and something goes wrong, you're going to get all the blame. And so, you know, the political dynamics here are, are really a mess. And it's why this conservatorship has continued much longer than anybody expected. Lastly, and most importantly, what would happen to mortgage rates if Fannie and Freddie were unleashed uh, to go re and buy mortgage-backed securities? Well, I think right now the view is that the rates are about 130 basis points uh, rate relative to the 10-year, uh, you know, wider. And so the idea would be if you could bring rates down even 100 basis points, and ideally 125 basis points, uh, you might be able to see that first number as a six rather than a seven or an eight. And we know that consumer behavior, when the first number is a six, uh, you know, they feel much more comfortable getting into housing. Indeed. And I do think there will be more calls for efforts to address mortgage rates, especially as the election heats up. Jared, for now, thank you. We appreciate it today. Always a pleasure. Jared Seberg with Cowan Washington Research Group. Coming up, Snap losing steam. Shares initially popped as much as 20% after they beat on the top and bottom line after the bell yesterday. But they're down 5% now after revealing that some advertisers pause spending following the Israel-Hamas war. Snap has served as an early barometer for ad spending the last couple quarters. So will Meta report the same problems this afternoon? We'll talk about that next. Another big day for tech earnings, Meta on deck after the bell. George Bosa has more on what to watch for in this print. And, yeah, I mean, after a busy day already here, Google didn't <laughs> snap and everything else, Deirdre. It's big tech earnings week. It'll continue to next week, too. So Meta, it's largely a cost story. It needs to show investors that it can balance its AI and metaverse ambitions with Zuckerberg's year of efficiency promise. What helps is that the company is lopping one of its worst quarters ever when Apple's privacy changes slammed its ability to sell targeted ads. And what a difference a year makes. Meta still gets nearly all of its revenue from ads on its family of apps, but it's now using AI-powered tools like Advantage Plus to compensate, and the market itself is getting stronger, as we saw from Snap and Google. Now, that combined with major cost-cutting this year, that has won goodwill from Meta investors and made it one of the best-performing stocks this year. So expectations are high and costs are back in focus. The street is watching operating expenditures that could be upwards of $100 billion and CapEx of $40 billion. Net income-free cash flow um, from the ad business, that will need to offset those gigantic 
at cost. Also want to mention Amazon Kelly because it reports tomorrow. Costs a key part of that story, too, especially as investors look for a bottom in cloud growth with Microsoft and Google really giving us mixed signals. Could go either way. But remember, AWS from Amazon, that's the largest cloud player out there. Yes, and after what we've heard, all the more reason to put those shares down, uh, all the more reason to, to listen for them. Deirdre, thanks. We appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa. Coming up, we're looking at three more names reporting after the bell. MasterCard has beaten on both the top and bottom lines, 18 out of the past 20 quarters. Bristol-Myers revised full-year guidance last quarter on slow sales of one of its cancer drugs. And with the 10-year creeping back towards 5%, we'll look at how much of a boost rising rates have given Ameriprise. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on all three in earnings exchange next. Welcome back. We've got some news from Capitol Hill. Emily Wilkins with the details. Emily, do we have a speaker? Kelly, it is all but official at this point. Mike Johnson has easily gotten enough votes to become speaker. All they need to do is formalize it, drop the gavel, and then it is official. You have had every Republican who was president, got one absence, every Republican, all 220 of them have backed Mike Johnson. From your more moderate members to your hardline conservatives, the Republican Party has now fully come behind Johnson and backed him and supported him. And now that he's going to be speaker, he's got a lot of work to do. I've heard a couple members talk about passing a resolution in support of Israel, obviously something that a lot of members want to get started on and could easily be bipartisan. But then Johnson's got to turn to the much heavier work of actually funding the government. Remember that November 17th deadline is coming up and Johnson has released a plan. It's incredibly ambitious. It would involve the House basically passing a ton of legislation in the next couple of weeks and then potentially capping that off with a stopgap bill that would give them time to work with the Senate to finalize legislation. So it's going to be a lot of work. He's going to have to hit the ground running. Uh, Congress can probably kiss goodbye to their two weeks of recess that they were supposed to have. Um, And right now, really, all we are waiting for is the votes to be finalized, the gavel to fall, and then we will have Speaker Mike Johnson of Louisiana uh, start taking control of the House and getting everyone back to work. If I'm not mistaken, he's maybe in his fourth uh, congressional term. So, uh, again, pretty new on that sense. But in this case, uh, with a track record that people seem to be able to rally behind. Emily, I, I, we have talked, you have reported that he and, and some of, the, of his supporters, this was very important to them, to not just pass a continuing resolution, uh, but to pass some of these spending bills one by one. What can you tell us about that? I can tell you that's going to be tough. I mean, these things not only take time, but some of them, like a bill that dealt with funding agriculture, rural areas, farmers, that one got a lot of opposition from Republicans. And when you talked with them about their issues, some said, hey, these cuts are too big. Others said the cuts weren't big enough. And then there was a related issue on there um, about pills that provide and provide provide abortions. And so you have lots of different issues to juggle with these bills. Two of them have been so contentious that they haven't even fully gotten out of committee yet. So he's going to have to be working through a number of different problems. And while we have heard some members say, look, we're willing to give him some grace. We know he's stepping into this role pretty fresh. We don't want him to be a continuation of McCarthy. At the same point, a deadline is a deadline. Things have to get done. And I don't think members are going to be fully moving off the positions they have just a few weeks ago because they have a new speaker. All right, Emily, thank you very much. We appreciate it. just want to turn for a quick comment back to Jarrett Seberg with Cowington Washington Research Group. Jarrett, appreciate you sticking around. A main implications for investors and for markets, top of your mind. 
Well, obviously, it's great news. I mean, it means we're going to get a continuing resolution. Uh, you know, we won't have a government shutdown. It's the last thing we need right now. Uh, probably pretty good news for supplementals uh, for Israel and probably Ukraine in order to get something done. That means more military spending in the United States, also positive for the economy. Uh, but let's not kid ourselves. I mean, the House can go through and try to pass all these bills. But, you know, the, the House is your adversary, the other party. The Senate is the real enemy. And trying to get the Senate to do all these bills is impossible. So, uh, you know, we may have a new speaker, but the politics on Capitol Hill are the same. All right. Jared, thank you. Uh, we appreciate it today. Jared Seberg sticking around for us. Let's turn from Capitol Hill to earnings, which we still have in this very busy week of the earnings season. We're trading consumer health, financial health and actual health in earnings exchange today. Looking at MasterCard, Ameriprise and Bristol-Myers Squibb. Marianne Montaigne is here with our trades today. She's Gradient Investments Portfolio Management Consultant. Marianne, good to see you again. Let's start with MasterCard, which is up 11 percent this year, but just saw its worst week of 2023 last week. Goldman warning the consumer spending remains stable, saying even in a downturn, MasterCard should be best positioned with higher end clients and international exposure and some preemptive warnings on Forex headwinds. Uh, do you like MasterCard here? Do you think they'll beat like Visa did? Uh, we do think they'll beat like Visa did because they're very similar in their payment processing business. Yesterday, as you recall, uh, Visa re reported uh, revenue up 11 percent, adjusted earnings up 21 percent with strong growth in overseas travel. And uh, that drives cross-border, uh, which is premium profitability in their payment volume. And as Visa reported, there's still growth to be had from Asian travel and also travel into the U.S. So we continue to like Visa um, with their attractive 15% discount to the historical uh, multiple premium to the relative to the S&P 500, uh, MasterCard should have similar results. All right, let's turn to Bristol-Myers Squibb then, which is on pace for its seventh straight month of declines, even after announcing that acquisition of Marathi a few weeks back. Cantor Fitzgerald bullish on the deal, but says Bristol needs to keep up M&A activity as drug patents expire and new launches gain steam. Again, a lot of people who are concerned about, you know, the economy and markets like to go to healthcare, but it's been a tough trade and Bristol is the poster child. What would you do here? Well, this is one that we like. It's uh, very attractively priced. And outside of the Federal Reserve, this is probably the most data-dependent entity in our coverage. Um, they had a very successful R&D analyst day recently, and there's three uh, drugs that are out there that have been approved that are probably doing better than folks expect. And so when they report earnings, we expect them to say positive things about the trends in these three drugs. Um, and then they'll also talk about that deal that they just made with Mirati. Um, uh, therapeutics for $6 billion, and we expect positive things to be said around there. So we've got about 24% upside to hmm. this name, and that's just factoring in nine times forward earnings, uh, next year's earnings. Wow. Okay, so pretty conservative. All right, let's get to Ameriprise then, the insurer and financial planner. Flattish year to date, but not without some drama. They clawed back their banking crisis losses only to then dip more than 12% since July. Piper Sandler says equity markets, rising rates, insurance claims pose the biggest risks. But you're bullish here as well. Is that right? 
Yeah, and just like Stiefel reported on their wealth management side, um, the uh, situation is very strong in that area. Um, and this is one of the largest RIAs or registered investment advisors in the U.S. They've been developing their own AI programs for uh, some time now, and they're just starting to roll those out. So that should uh, enhance the growth of revenues and cut costs. Our target price is 23% higher from here, and that's based on 10 and a half times calendar 2025 earnings. And this all compares to, you know, something around 17 times for the overall market. So huge discount. All right, Marianne, we appreciate it. Thank you so much today. Marianne Montaigne for Earnings Exchange. And that does it for us. I want to quickly draw your attention to the Japanese yen, which appears to have once again breached the 150 level to the dollar just a moment ago on that. A lot of key metrics we're watching. The Nasdaq near its 200-day, the yen at 150-ish, let's call it. Uh, these have been some pretty critical junctures for investors in the recent past. Up next on Power Lunch, the four names Morgan Stanley says will be impacted by the popularity of weight loss drugs. Tyler getting ready. I'll join him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma trip to Texas. So go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.